0: everyone. My name is Haley, and this is Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast that discusses addiction, mental health, and treatment. I'm here with our medical director, Dr. Bot, and our content director, Jeff. How are you two doing today?
1: Good, Haley. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. Today's a good day. Me too. On this podcast, we talk a lot about signs of addiction and how to take that step to find treatment, but we haven't really dove into what happens after treatment. Rehab is a place where your focus is on recovery and you're not surrounded by opportunities to drink or use drugs. You also have the support of counselors and your peers who are also focused on their own recovery. But that's not the real world. And once you leave treatment, you really need to be prepared to face triggers and, you know, have a plan. So I want to get into that today, but let's back up a little. Dr. Bott, how does someone know when they're ready to leave rehab?
1: I think that's a question that um, most people are asking themselves when they're there. You know, when we enter treatment and when somebody enters treatment, they should be working with a treatment team. Hopefully, if they're in a residential rehab, which we put in this context where they are physically staying there, usually we start a treatment plan. A treatment plan incorporates achieving certain objectives and meeting certain goals. So when we followed that roadmap, roadmap to recovery, which helps somebody, you know, see measurable things occur during their treatment, if it is a therapeutic breakthrough, if it is showing additional coping skills, gaining additional insight, getting stabilized on their medications, these are things that are accomplished while we're in treatment. Also recognizing what is going to be needed for us to be successful in our recovery once we leave treatment. And that also needs to be solidified before one is discharged. And that entails having a good aftercare plan and having a good aftercare um, roadmap in place. Addiction being recognized as a chronic, Illness, something most people are going to live with for the rest of their lives in terms of trying to maintain staying abstinent for substances. These are things that should be put in place before somebody uh, is discharged. So you would know once that consensus has come between the treatment team and the patient and ensuring that all of these components have been put together so somebody can maintain long-term recovery. And uh, I wish it was so fixed in stone or tangible, concrete, like a checkbox. It's not. And many times people leaving are going to have a healthy level or unhealthy level of apprehension and anxiety because there's certain, as you mentioned at the outset, there's um, a certain level of buffer or safety of hopeful sterility within a treatment center. And, um, you know, it, so it's it's natural to be somewhat anxious about leaving and and saying I'm ready, but your your goal and your um, likelihood of being successful is there if you have you know make sure those things that we just mentioned are addressed and in place before your discharge.
0: What kind of questions should someone ask their treatment center before leaving?
1: It's important to. Uh, address and ask the things that I was just talking about in terms of what those components of a proper, safe, healthy recovery environment should look like. And are those biological, psychological, social, and environmental needs met or planned for? So in terms of asking a question, it should be not just unilateral. It should be a consensus. It you know, nobody should be engaged in any sort of treatment alone, you got to do it as a team. Obviously, if you've gone to treatment for any medical, psychological, mental health, addiction issue, you should be working in collaboration with your doctors and therapists. So, it shouldn't be just an answer they provide you, but something that you all agree on and question as a team. And, um, when I meant biologically, you know, our is somebody on the correct medications that they could be placed on to address any psychiatric or mental health conditions or medications that could help maintain or stay abstinent from illicit substances or alcohol, biological components. Also their medical condition, are fundamental underlying healthcare illnesses addressed. And then from a psychological perspective, in addition to medications, are there therapeutic things that are addressed and at least stabilized where, you know, somebody who might need to continue has those things in place in terms of availability to therapy. Socially, is my environment correct? Do I have the right support groups? Um, are they planned for, are they coordinated? Do I have a sponsor if that's the direction I want to go and where am I going to live? That's the environmental part. Who am I going to be living with? All of these things need to be answered as a team for someone to feel that they have an increased likelihood, a chance to be successful in, um, you know, solid sobriety.
0: I want to talk about sober living homes for a little bit. Um, How do they function and who would they be appropriate for?
1: Sober residences, living homes, there's so many different terms used for a place where somebody should may go to, to have a healthy environment in which to stay sober, abstinent from illicit drugs or alcohol. They're good for people who may not, who may be at risk for going back into their original environment. That um, could be one where somebody is using and they need to go to an alternative place which provides peer support structured living, and a, a model, and for somebody to maintain solid sobriety, and uh, stay in recovery. So this can be different for, for, you know, there's not one unique individual characteristic that, you know, people would have, but generally, if you need a safe place, a structured place, people who are around you who can show you and demonstrate Sober tools and demonstrate a healthy way of living without using drugs and alcohol, and they can be supportive of one another. Those people who need that would benefit from a sober living situation.
0: Um, I think it's important for people to continue counseling or therapy once they leave treatment, but is that something that they have to find on their own, or is that something that a treatment center will help them arrange?
1: I would hope in this day and age that treatment centers around the country, around the world are prepared to develop that aftercare program. And for the most part, I believe this is happening. Uh, People shouldn't be going to treatment and then left to their own accord to find these things. You know, a lot of people still haven't gained proper habits and might not recognize what's healthy in terms of what's needed. And that, is why we go to treatment to help direct us, support us, guide us and help cultivate and prepare us to be successful once we're discharged. And that incorporates having a good aftercare plan put in place. So um, an aftercare plan should be created and, uh, and cultivated uniquely tailored for an individual and a patient and the treatment center should be providing that.
0: I know it depends on the individual and, you know, what substance that they are overcoming, but what kind of medications are often taken after leaving rehab?
1: You know, that's a good question. I think a lot of times, you know, there could be some debate on, you know, how people perceive medications in in terms of helping or enhancing somebody staying abstinent from, from a drugs or alcohol. And when I use the word drugs, I'm I'm assuming everybody knows we're talking about illicit drugs here. I'm not talking about prescribed medications. But um, you know, aside from medications that are available, that can help treat an underlying psychiatric or mental health condition. See, those are things that need to be looked at. Also, those things that are available like antidepressants, anti anxiety medications, Mood stabilizers to help treat somebody's underlying maybe depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder that could be contributing to their use of illicit substances. See, a lot of times when people aren't psychiatrically or mentally stable, they often seek out substances to stabilize them, unfortunately incorrectly, but it, they do that. And um, so those are, that's one component. And then there's medications available that directly relate to the substances of abuse. There are medications available to help with opioid use disorders, for example. Um, There are antagonists, anti-craving medications, opiate blocking agents like naltrexone. They're available in oral pill form. where you take one pill a day, they've shown and demonstrated in research and clinical studies to help decrease someone's craving and increase um, the time in between uh, possible relapse and help people stay abstinent. Now, is also available to treat alcohol use disorder too. And these are available again orally and in, a, in an injectable form that's given once a month. Alcohol in itself has medications available to remain abstinent. These medications are known as anti abuse uh, or acamprosate, which is campril. And um, these medications can again help with someone staying um, substance or alcohol free. So, I don't want to go through the whole laundry list of things that are available, but um, there are medications that are there, and I think it should be incorporated into part of a comprehensive uh, plan um, to keep somebody uh, abstinent and healthy.
0: So I know, obviously, relapse is a big concern for people leaving. How do they prepare to face those triggers?
1: Putting a good aftercare plan in place is usually the proper way to go to help, you know, overcome um, the potential for relapsing. This, this needs to happen in, 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 in inside while you're in treatment. Hopefully you've identified what are those triggers for, for, for relapse and then putting that aftercare plan in place to help make that happen, avoiding relapse, um, you know, and being successful. So oftentimes people who are using substances, they, they have a pattern that's there of certain persons and places and things or situations that have led ultimately to substance use behaviors. And in between the person, places, things, and situations and the substance there's often certain thoughts and certain feelings and emotions. And one of the things I encourage people when they're in treatment is to, to explore this in therapy, in groups, and, and to help recognize within themselves, what are those connections? What are those persons, places, things, and situations that might lead to negative thoughts, that might um, create negative emotions that subsequently cause someone to use? To identify these things help us recognize triggers when we're outside of treatment, in, in the real world, so to speak. you know. And then making that, you know, executionable in, in your aftercare plan through your aftercare plan by making sure that your proper therapies are in place to address those emotional situations, those thoughts that might be um, ongoing and uh, creating a proper environment to, you know, stay away from those persons or places or things or situations that might provoke somebody um, to use. So, These are things that somebody needs to prepare for before and after in order to be successful in their recovery.
0: Okay. I kind of have a question that might be a little, you know, tough to answer because I'm sure it depends on the situation. But what if somebody's family is a negative influence and is something that makes them want to use? Does that mean that they should, you know, avoid their family?
1: I think more than tough to answer, it's tough to execute because... Yeah, they're your family, you know, and, and I think the, the quick answer is you should not be around people that could negatively affect or impact your recovery. And as difficult as it may be, um, we have to try and not put ourselves in a situation where these people can continue to impact and influence us. So we should not leave this up to the patient alone. The patient shouldn't have to tackle that situation on their way out of rehabilitation. They need to have that addressed while in treatment. And good treatment programs, comprehensive treatment programs should have addressed this while that patient's in treatment. Engage the family member, bring them in, make sure that these things are spoken about. If I could give an analogy is is if I am in a psychiatric unit and I'm dealing with a suicidal patient and I don't check to ensure that there's no firearms in the home. Well then we didn't do our job to prepare this person to avoid harm. Similarly, if I am treating somebody who is suffering with addiction and they're going to be going home and I don't address what's in their environment and that's including the people could be their mother, their father, their wife, whoever, we need to bring them in and we need to identify this and then educate them and see if we can solve that problem in advance. That's really how we should we should do that. Because the same thing we talk about when we talk to family members of the person suffering with addiction, we talk about setting boundaries and we talk about setting limits. And we ask the family member to make tough decisions to put somebody with addiction in in treatment or encourage them to seek help. Well, once that person's now, you know, in early recovery, it's not fair to them to have to go back into a situation. And that family member might not be, you know, an addict suffering with addiction, but just this mere presence of substances and the legal usage of uh, illicit substances or just certain behaviors can be a, a huge trigger. and we have to decrease that potential as much as possible.
0: From your knowledge of being in this field, what are some of the most common struggles that people face after leaving rehab?
1: There's quite a few. And even though I I believe there's a handful of them, these are things that can be addressed. And um, we can start out with, with, with cravings. Let's talk about cravings. People often, due to just the physical and psychological habituation of being someone who suffers with a substance use disorder, leaving treatment and then being placed into a, an environment where they don't have the same you know, conditions, cravings is, is a big one. And this is where we, we help people with medications that can lower, if the patient's open to it, lower cravings, diminish cravings, also help them with cognitive behavioral interventions and therapies to help them diminish um, cravings psychologically. These are things that often are big in terms of um, what people face when it comes to leaving. Um, And again, the environmental situation um, that could lead to cravings. Again, the person, the the habits, the the places that they visit, the people that they live with, you know, these are things um, that often are big ones to have people have the triggers. So again, putting them in a proper environment, and that's where often the recovery residences, the sober support uh, housing, um, people call them halfway or whatever, but these are things that can be there uh, where places can go, people can go, excuse me, that uh, can provide uh, a safer uh, environment for them to um, you know, build on their
0: recovery. Can you talk about the types of support groups that are available?
1: This becomes a you know a philosophical thing for many people. You know, should I follow 12-step? Um, should I do a faith-based? You know, recovery. There are many different ways that people can go. I think we 12-step might be the most popular. Um, AA and programs. These are things that um, are, have led to many people being successful around the world in terms of um, staying uh, away from drugs and alcohol. Um, and that is a, is a huge one. And then, then there are many different modalities that are out there, um, that often people feel have helped them and they're not necessarily 12 step based. So I don't want to necessarily promote any uniquely, but, um, There are many different support groups that help people focus on um, things that are important to them that are shared amongst people with similar goals and similar thoughts and similar um, outlooks. And usually when the, 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 the unifying goal is to stay away from things that harm them, to stay away from illicit drugs and alcohol, these are the premises. Uh, ultimately the goal for these support groups and um, many many exist around uh, around the country and based on different philosophies and I'll just leave it at that and um, I think it's important though that people just seek them out like minded people sharing like-minded goals for the like-minded purpose of staying in recovery
0: yeah I mean the sense of community I think is so important And that's also something I wanted to talk about because going through treatment, somebody might realize that all of their friends are just people that they used to use with and they may come out of treatment realizing that they can't, you know, really be friends with that group anymore. How would somebody go about making new friends, you know, new positive sober friends?
1: Oftentimes people develop friendships and supporting uh, supporting cast members while in treatment. And in support groups. And it's not, an easy, it's not an easy journey. It's not an easy journey when those people who are closest to you could be the ones who are the most dangerous to you. And of course, um, that takes time. And that's why recovery is a, is a long-term process. You know, when we have become so accustomed to behaving and using and feeling a certain way around certain people, relatives or not friends, whoever, um, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So developing these relationships, often using a sponsor, having the sponsor introduce you to other healthy support, support, supportive people, uh, being in a recovery residence where your peers are, um, having the same goals and are using same techniques to, 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 live healthy and sober lives. These are where friendships are built because those friendships are built on a common goal. And often, you know, people get an, uh, an introduction to living life and seeking out, um, enjoyment in different ways. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of deconditioning what you've, you've learned previously. And, um, it, it often starts with, um, building from within, building from within the treatment center, joining alumni programs. Often alumni programs are a great way to network with individuals who have completed treatment, who have completed treatment from the same place and have months to years worth of sobriety. And, um, these people become great support systems for people and, uh, great lifelong friendships develop from there. So, um, yeah, it's 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 definitely difficult, but it's something that's necessary and achievable, and um, to to live so live in uh, in recovery for the long term.
0: I'd like to talk briefly about you know health and wellness. Does exercise and eating a healthy diet really matter? Like, does that really help with recovery?
1: That helps with everything. You know, I I don't think we should isolate. Um, somebody who suffers with a substance use disorder versus somebody who suffers with a respiratory illness or a cardiac illness. For most individuals that don't have a contraindication to it, you should be eating healthy. We are what we eat. The nutrition that we provide to our body leads to health, leads to physical health and emotional health. People who are eating badly, who are not properly providing their bodies with proper nutrition, Their bodies become ill. They don't have energy. Um, Exercise is a great example of discipline and habit. And as a result, we look better, we feel better. And um, it's proven that those who look better, feel better about themselves. Again, it doesn't have to be about aesthetics. It's about your own goals and achievement. And the fact that exercise releases endorphins and makes us feel well and good. And it allows people to have um, transformation observed, which is often something that is extremely gratifying to people. So, it, and it's not necessarily, again, not just about the way you look, it's about the, the feeling that transforms uh, within us. And exercise provides us that, again, releases endorphins and makes us feel good. And there's so much science behind that. And um, when we're looking for long-term recovery, it shouldn't just be about the presence or absence of illicit substances and alcohol, but also um, physically being in proper condition. And that also second segues to diet. Diet is the key to our body's well-being. You know, if we continue to eat badly, um, our body will react badly and it will develop many illnesses as a result. So. Diet and exercise has a huge impact on our uh, physical and mental well-being, and it's, it's highly encouraged. If there's no underlying medical illnesses that stops you from doing it, you should get physically active, and you should eat properly.
0: So I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, but unfortunately, relapse is common. It happens. What should somebody do if they relapse?
1: I think that's an important question, you know, People who relapse often feel like there's a huge moral failing. And that's a reason often to feel guilty and shame and a trigger to continue to use. And that's exactly what it isn't. You know, it is a difficult time for human being when they have put so much time and investment or not the fact that they just have used again, because it, it, it affects us emotionally, psychologically, physically. But the the worst thing they can do is use that and embellish within it and um, continue to use Um, people oftentimes in early recovery, who don't have the skill sets, or I I, let me rephrase that haven't solidified their skills. um, Often, and it's subconscious. It's subconscious. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. It's part of the, the the illness of addiction is that, you know, we often use or catastrophize things in order to continue usage. We need a reason to use, and uh, sometimes we are catastrophizing components of our lives or making things mountains out of molehills, and we we use, and then we say, okay, that's it. But that can be applied to any sort of you know, behaviors that we are trying to change. It could be somebody who is trying to eat healthy because they have high cholesterol or diabetes. And they're like, oh, you know, I, I just broke my diet. Let me continue to eat badly. And obviously sometimes that's not gonna have the same level of significance as somebody who's suffering with addiction. But the premise is the same. If somebody does relapse, if they have a aftercare team aftercare program support system sponsor they need to reach out and activate their rescue mechanisms you know if somebody has really done their homework and invested in themselves by creating that understanding of the environmental emotional uh, thinking issues that create um, usage and um, promote Illicit substance use. Well, hopefully they can catch those things before they happen. But again, once they happen, they need to have had before they leave rehab a a, a plan, uh, and that plan should incorporate, you know, including support members, supportive members in their lives, and um, you know, not looking at it as a failure, and and getting back on track. And often that incorporates reaching out to a loved one, to uh, a clinician, their therapist, their sponsor, a friend, somebody who is a sober support to help them get back on track. But it should not be a reason to continue to use, even though that's easier said than done. But um, the mainstay is to to activate your support system that you should have in place, um, hopefully, again, before you have left treatment.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bott, for going over this with me today. If you want to hear more conversations on addiction and recovery, you can listen to more episodes on addictioncenter.com. Don't forget to check out our other resources while you're there, and we hope to have you next time for another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.